from KPFK in Los Angeles, California, Valley Free Radio in Florence, and WMBR in Cambridge, Massachusetts, WNUC in Detroit, and BikeTalk.org worldwide. This is Bike Talk. Bike Talk. Hey Welcome guys. to Bike Talk. Hey, hey Seamus. Hey Nick. You know, I'm sitting at home in my recording studio. Nick, I think you're in your recording studio. Seamus, where are you? I'm on the side of the road with a flat Wait. tire here. This is a tubeless tire, and I think something's wrong with it. It won't. It won't keep. So my wife's coming to get me. <laughs> How many miles did you do today? Fifty-four. Wow, that's pretty good. 52. You said something about kilometers on Strava. I'm trying to get my uh, my April Grand Fondo, which yeah, is get your metric century. Yeah, my metric century. Right on. How was your ride, Seamus? After or during, towards the end of the pandemic, and after the pandemic, there was like a a new sort of energy around bikes and active transportation, and it seemed almost like safer to ride a bike. But I feel, I mean, this is anecdotal, I guess, but I just think that. Cars are driving more aggressively than ever. I'm not sure why that is exactly. A couple guys have tried to drive me off the road. Not that it's ever necessary, but it's sort of out of the blue. Like there's not yeah. like a, a reason. There's nothing clearly igniting their road rage. Since the pandemic, there's actually a few less cars on the road. And so these cars are seeing all this open space, all this pavement in front of them, and they're just speeding all the time. Well, that, during the pandemic, sure, but now there's just cars everywhere. Just yeah, like cars that. are back. Cars are back, baby. Could it be part of the just the polarization and the anger in this country? And could be. Don't well, I don't think people... that the drivers know that Seamus is a hardcore lefty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it could be a Republican for all they know. Do, do Republicans, do re- Republicans ride bikes or not? <laughs> I'm sure some of them do. <laughs> Isn't the bike a symbol of? It's a symbol of of freedom of choice, is what it is. Well, you know, speaking of uh, traffic violence and unsafe roads, I think our first interview today is with the Oakland Traffic Violence Rapid Response Group, and it's George Spees and Carter Lavin. Oh, and I want to give a shout out to the station that is going to start airing Bike Talk, WNUC 96.7 FM, Detroit. Welcome, Michigan. All right. My home state. I love it. Yeah. All right. Here's the interview. Seamus, you did this interview. Yeah, it was interesting. Check it out. I am here today with Carter Lavin and George Spees, both from Traffic Violence Rapid Response in Oakland. And they are here today to talk about sea change in Oakland. Maybe you guys can begin just by talking about Traffic Violence Rapid Response and how that came to be. Sure, I can take that piece. So the group came together rather ad hoc last June when a well-known member of the restaurant community up here in the East Bay was struck and killed by a driver while bicycling home from work one night. And Brian Colbertson, who had been volunteering with a similar group in San Francisco, he decided that he was going to stage an action and whoever showed up, showed up. And he thought there may be three or four people, but there were, I don't know, something more like 30 people. And that really tapped into a real frustration that had been growing in the city about traffic violence. And even before we could get between the death and the event afterwards, what we call a vigil, someone else had been struck and killed in another neighborhood, an elderly woman by the name of Eliana Martinez. 
So we thought, well, if we're going to do it for one, we'll do it for all. And then began a long string of these vigil actions where we would go to the location where someone had died due to traffic violence and to commemorate them and to raise awareness in the community that these problems don't arise necessarily out of poor driver behavior, but rather the encouragement that the infrastructure offers to poor drivers to do the wrong thing. Absolutely. And so where does traffic violence rank in terms of the problems that Oakland residents face? Where does it rank in Oakland? Yeah. So over 30 people were killed by traffic violence last year in Oakland. When you stack that up next to homicides, it's about a third or a quarter. And when you say how many people were injured from traffic violence, that's hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people in Oakland. And when you say how many people are afraid of letting their kids cross the street? How many people are nervous about crossing the street? How many people do not feel safe in their community? And from my conversations, flyering and petitioning in parts all across Oakland, you know, this is something that is shared all the time. And I think one thing about traffic violence, whether you're in Oakland or Los Angeles or Nebraska or wherever you are, is it's something that people feel disempowered around. It's something that people shrug off. They say, man, that car almost killed me. Wow, that was a scary moment. Whew. Okay, anyway, what were we talking about? And a big part of it is of the problems that Oakland faces, of the problems that Los Angeles faces, wherever you are, this is actually one of the most solvable problems at the local scale. I just want to focus on that point for a second. When we talk about the things that afflict us in our society, there is obviously horrible gun violence, right? There is. Mm -hmm. But there's no Second Amendment stopping us from addressing vehicular homicide. It seemed like we could elevate it more quickly. Yeah. Stopping gun violence requires the federal Senate that involves a lot of people thousands of miles away from us who have a lot of other agendas and things like that. Stopping traffic violence is some traffic circles, some speed bumps, adding protections to bike lanes. That is something that your mayor, your city council member could do tomorrow. And the world is filled with examples of cities that just said, hey, we're going to take this seriously. And within six months, a year, two years, three years, they drastically changed the communities to be safer for everybody. Hmm. What do you think led to the rapid expansion in understanding specifically in Oakland and this kind of perceived commitment to these substantive changes in street design? I think Measure U, similar to Measure M in LA, but it maybe is more encompassing of other issues. But what do you think led to this rapid increase in understanding? Well, I would say that probably the turning point event was the pandemic. In former Mayor Schaaf's office, Warren Logan, who is a transportation planner and an advocate for traffic safety, he became part of the emergency response team within the city around the pandemic. And one of the things that came out of that was the establishment of slow streets, right? Blocking off streets scattered across the city so that people could get out and recreate and have space to do that. And bringing people out into the street and making a demonstration that the streets could be for people, and at the same time, reducing congestion on the freeways and in the arterials, thereby allowing an increase in traffic speeds, those two things went together. And people began to see from their position on foot on the street that traffic was dangerous. And I think that the public perception began to change there. Um, and also, we've had a significant uptick in traffic violence that may be related to that or not, but certainly it was something that people began to see a real problem. I think as part of that, in the uptick of violence, it's something that people 
once people understand that it's solvable, once people understand that you put a couple of concrete blocks, you make a street into a cul-de-sac, and now traffic in the whole neighborhood's calmer, kind of get angry that why haven't we done this before? And mm-hmm. so I think there's that certain level of we're in this era where people are doing it and taking it seriously. And that enables folks who have never paid attention to this, who just have kind of shrugged and said, well, what are you going to do? Once they see that there's actually a solution, and once there's activists and advocates in communities saying, hey, here's a solution, which one do you like? Then that really helps people go from accepting this begrudgingly to being mad it exists and demanding change. So Measure U is a funding source, correct? Does it have language in it that requires the city to implement changes on the high injury corridor network or whatever you want to call it? Yeah, let me talk to that a little bit. So after maybe the third or fourth traffic violence vigil that we staged, literally the next week, there was going to be a vote on placing this on the ballot. This was back in, I want to say, early July. And we showed up and said, this language needs to include not just the repaving of our streets, but the inclusion of safety measures. And we listed them out. And we had a couple of champions on the city council who picked up that language and made sure it was included. Shout out to Dan Kalb and to Carol Fife for pushing that and for Council President Boss shepherding that into the language. So once that got into Measure U, saying every time you go out to pave, you're going to add this suite of safety measures, then we all went out and campaigned real hard for it, right, to get that in. And so now that's passed and that funding source is being established. It's a little bit slow start. And it was also paired with a lot of money for affordable housing. So Mm -hmm. we're working on implementation of how did that money get spent, but the language is there and the money is starting to come in. I asked that question because often we have elected officials who have literally the best of intentions. They want to implement these changes. They want safer streets. They really want it, but it becomes difficult. They don't necessarily anticipate the amount of blowback from people who are very pro-car, very much want to continue to drive unabated through neighborhoods. And it becomes a heavier lift down the road, if you will. And so my question is, do you guys anticipate that being an issue? And is that something that you are ready to continue advocating for? Will you have to continue advocating for? Or do you think that we have a new kind of energy in city council and in the government in Oakland? I mean, everyone's pro-convenience and everyone's pro not getting murdered by a car. Even if all you do all day long is drive your F-250 to the grocery store, there's a part where you get out of your car and you cross the street, whether it's just from the one parking lot to the other parking lot. And if that moment you feel unsafe, you're open to ideas. At the end of the day, this isn't about cars bad, bikes good. This is getting murdered in your neighborhood by crossing the street is bad. And hey, if we change these things so that it's a little bit safer and a little bit smoother, closing a slip lane or what have you that a person driving doesn't even notice exists and they're just popping along. This isn't controversial. And this is extraordinarily affordable. A big thing is you have to be open to having the conversation with folks and you say, hey, let's talk about your safety. Talk about how you feel. And I think there are people who are nervous about uh, the parking lobby, the great big all-powerful parking lobby, and they don't want to fight with them. It's like, this has nothing to do with that. This is about saying, look, if you're a senior, do you feel comfortable? Like, what's going on? 
Because a big thing that I've seen from my canvassing and just talking to folks about this particular effort in Oakland right now is everyone believes that everyone else is the worst driver in the world. Everyone is very pro fixing it so all the other drivers drive as good as they drive. And that's, I think, part of the winning strategy. I think that kind of communication, that kind of bridge building that like, hey, notice how everyone's on their phone and speeding. Yeah, everyone else is a nut. Okay, well, if we narrow the roads and we have some more speed bumps, everyone else will drive safer. I think that's just important to have those conversations. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think I would add a little bit more to that as well. Just in terms of the dynamics that you're asking about, Seamus, you sort of break down the overall public into subsets. We definitely need to think about shopkeepers and the mythology that they have around parking equals business. Mm -hmm. Right. And a lot of times, if you dig around a little bit, you'll discover that parking equals me being able to drive in from Walnut Creek and park in front of the store that I run in Oakland. Right. And then the other piece of inertia also comes from management, not necessarily the staff, but some staff and just the overall inertia of making a government entity do something different. So the will is there, the desire is there on the part of the council, on the part of the mayor, on the part of quite a few people within the organization, but getting the whole thing to move is so many pieces and parts and veto points and all of the rest of that, and a belief in process. Great conversation happening nationally about how process gets in our way, so I won't address it, but we certainly see it here as well. Mm -hmm. For sure. So I've read something that said that, to quote from that the difference between this year's budget proposals and those of the past is that the council members are well-versed in the language of collision prevention. Collisions used to be called accidents while traffic violence was just crashes. And the focus of policymakers rested largely on facilitating car trips to and from business districts. I guess this is something that gives me hope in Oakland. I think that having this change where the language that we use, the kind of perception we are communicating to the broader community, people who aren't necessarily involved in advocacy, but who need to understand where we are headed and what we're trying to do. And it's really a quality of life issue. Not only is it about traffic violence, but we're talking at least bike talk We are talking about changing our transportation systems on a fundamental level, making it so that you don't need a car necessarily. It doesn't have to be a bike. I mean, I love bikes. Bikes changed my life, but it could be any number of alternative transportation options. At lots of points in recent years, it sometimes feels like that hope comes up against reality eventually. And you're talking about bureaucratic inertia. I want to know, how confident are you guys that Oakland is really about to change? And is it going to be this sort of flagship for the state? That's what it seems like I'm seeing in an article that I read. We definitely hope that. But I think in terms of bureaucratic inertia, that goes both ways. George and I and this group, we're not the first people to ever say, hey, getting hit by cars is bad. The Black Panthers, decades ago, this was one of their big accomplishments with street safety in West Oakland. There is a long history of that type of activism here and in days across America. And a big part is, as we talk about winning the culture war, if you're someone who listens to Bike Talk and you're chatting with your mayor or reaching out, They have no idea what a protected bike lane is. They don't know what a slip lane is, a share any of those things. And they don't have to, and they shouldn't have to. And your job is to help demystify that. We've had city council members say, how would a protected bike lane actually have saved a life? 
And there is a part where you have to say, oh, because if there is a concrete barrier that's three feet tall, the Ford F-150 can't hit the person in the bike lane. You just have to do that explanation. You have to use that language and explain it over and over and over because this is work. There is a million things for your city council member, whether you're in Oakland or other cities, to focus on and to think about. And this kind of consistent education really helps pave the way. And I think to kind of bureaucratic inertia, Measure U is unlocking millions and millions of dollars for street safety funding. That means bureaucratic inertia eventually will be on the side of street safety. I think a lot of bike activists, rightly so, pick the fight based off of a particular bike lane or a particular intersection. And those are really hard kind of knife fights going on in the community. And when you focus on how do we increase community safety, what are the mechanisms we need to have that kind of create these bureaucracies in our favor, that makes those kind of knife fights easier. And I think Measure U is a great effort. I think the culture effort is a great effort. I think here in Oakland, we are seeing this big thing. As you say, there's a lot of great intentions. We need to make sure those intentions are followed through. Paint and flashing lights don't keep us safe. Neither do promises and plans. We need concrete. But I'm excited about what's to come, hopefully. Yeah, I'd like to add a little bit as well. So just touching on the history and the breadth of the movement for traffic safety, which is what I'm calling it now, but certainly there have been other names. There's a raft of groups, Draper Bikes, Rollout Crew, other folks in neighborhoods across the city who are organizing group bike rides, right? Doing bicycle rider education, doing bike giveaways. At the same time, people are encountering this thing where we're concerned about our seniors. We're concerned about our kids getting to and from school. There are so many different pathways into this same topic where the language is different, the concern is different, the specifics of a given neighborhood or a given incident are different. And so as much as that can feel overwhelming, it also provides so many different options and opportunities for people to come together. And so Mm -hmm. I've been really delighted to be able to meet people across the city who share these concerns. And as Carter was saying in his petitioning work, scratch the surface and there's a lot of people out here who are scared of the streets. We did a vigil on Bancroft and 62nd and some folks who lived in the house right where we were came out of their house and talked to us about how they don't walk in their neighborhood because of the danger there. So it's there, it's mostly latent, but it keeps popping up in many different ways and in different groups and different voices. And I think that that is a hopeful sign that change is on its way. And I'd like to just tell a little story Carter made the point about educating your elected officials. We literally got that question that he said, how would a protected bike lane have helped this? And a lot of people read that question as dismissive, right? But one of our members, Tim Courtney, took that question seriously and said, let me explain this and went to the trouble of explaining it in depth over time, developing a relationship with that council member so that she could understand it. And then when we had a vigil that occurred in her district, He went and met her and they bicycled to the event. And she was terrified because she saw for herself, had that visceral experience of like, these cars could kill me. And that created a real ally for us on the board. So it's pieces and parts. It's slow moving. But I do think that we have approached the opportunity to have a turning point. I don't know that we've turned it yet, but forces are gathering. 
I really agree with that, George. I think that that's the case in many places in California right now, that we are at a tipping point, if you will, where it's possible. But I see car commercials and car culture. It's very ingrained in California. So you guys definitely have support from Bike Talk. I hope we get to talk to you again in the future. I'm sure we will to kind of revisit this and see how things are progressing. But thank you guys both, George Spees and Carter Lavin, for coming on Bike Talk today. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Really appreciate it. So one of the takeaways from that interview that I thought was great was when we started to talk about using correct language when we're talking about vehicle violence and drivers running cyclists down um, instead of saying a car, you know, ran through an intersection and killed some people. It really does need to be, you know, this driver driver did that. Right, right. Yeah. And that's the um, same thing, Seamus, that we talk about in the next interview. Uh, so I'm I'm really glad that they that they brought that up. And I think that's something that it's easy for all of our listeners and all of us to do is just change how we talk about this stuff. And it's important. Car culture is ingrained in our language. It's everywhere. Yeah. Everything we say. Jaywalking, even the terminology around what are the different classes of bike lands? It needs to be in our language. It needs to be easier to use. Right. You know, one of the great things in this next interview that Maria Cantrell says is that it took us 50 years to get here. We can't expect to get out of it in five, but we have to start. Hmm. You know, one of the things I wanted to say about your interview, Seamus, is I really love the fact when the guy said, if a person, you know, especially an elected official doesn't understand exactly what a protected bike lane can do on a street to make it safer for everyone rather than sort of poo-pooing them and, you know, saying they don't know, or they don't care. They really broke it down and explained why on this one street in your interview, had they had a protected bike lane, two of those people would not have died. Coming up next, we have an interview with Maria Cantrell, who is the uh, Vision Zero coordinator for Columbus, Ohio, and Emma Kogi, who is a transportation planner in in Columbus, Ohio, and also Angie Schmidt, who many of you might know, who is a transportation writer. Not only has she written for Streets Blog, but she also wrote the wonderful book, Right of Way. It's an interesting interview because Columbus, Ohio is a little bit behind the eight ball in moving forward with Vision Zero. They just started in 2019, but they're going, and I'm glad that these three powerful women are behind the movement in the Midwest. So today we're speaking with Maria Cantrell, who's the Vision Zero Coordinator in Columbus, and Emma Kogi, who is the Transportation Planner. And we're also lucky to have Angie Schmidt, who I'm sure a lot of you all know. So Emma, Maria, and Angie, welcome to Bike Talk. Thanks for having us. I wonder um, if we could start with you, Maria, if you could introduce yourself a little bit and tell us a little bit about what's going on with Vision Zero in Columbus. Maria Cantrell. I am the uh, coordinator for Vision Zero Columbus. My background is as an engineer, civil engineer, and I've been working in the industry for 20 years. And in 2019, our director of our Department of Public Service approached me to help lead this initiative for the city. She had seen Vision Zero movement starting through conferences she attended, and she felt very strongly that this was missing in Ohio and we needed to get this started. We started digging into background, researching what other cities were doing, lessons learned, and announced that we were going to be pursuing this, got lots of data, did lots of working groups 
with the public and launched our first Vision Zero Action Plan in technically started April 1st of 2021. Oh, so it's it's new. It's brand new pretty much, right? Um, Yeah. And, you know, we were doing a lot of that background and data and working group information in the throes of the pandemic. When we first even announced that we were going to do Vision Zero, it was the same day our governor shut schools down for the state. And we were the first state to even do that. It was a little bit of chaos. Everyone was going home. But nonetheless, we knew that this was an important effort but recognizing that we had some unique timeline going on. Right. Our first right. action plan was, we, we were like, we want to start this. We know we need to start it now. We're not going to wait, but let's have a two-year plan of action and then go from there, see what we're going to learn, what's going to change, right. and then continue from there. So our first action plan has actually actually ended in March of 2023. We're buttoning up some strategies to to have our continued next action plan that will go for the next five years. Um, and that should be coming out in the next couple months so that we can just continue the work we have started. Right. What's the mission state of your Vision Zero program? The bottom line is we're prioritizing life and safety over everything else on our transportation system. Great. Yeah, that's I, I was looking at your at your presentation and I just love that, you know, line lives above all else that that's kind of your motto. You know, one of the things we fight against so much in Los Angeles is is travel time, speed. And I think you even mentioned that in some of these changes, the the travel time doesn't change that much. Right. I think there's, as part of the understanding and culture shift, the concept of safe speeds doesn't necessarily mean delay. Great. Yeah, I haven't heard that before. I love that. Safe speeds doesn't mean delay. Emma, as the as the transportation coordinator, I'd like you to introduce yourself and tell us a little bit about how you fit in to the Vision Zero plan. Um, so I'm Emma Coggy. I'm a transportation planner with the city of Columbus. Um, I have about seven years of planning experience in the city since the pandemic, actually. So it's kind of interesting to come in right when Vision Zero was starting as well. Since I've been with the city, I've worked on a lot of road diet studies and where we can add in some bikeway projects um, and better bikeway facilities. Our last protected facility was installed in 2015. We just want to continue to actually add more protected bike facilities. That was our first and only one. Yeah, that was eight eight years ago. Yeah. Well, what, what were the things that you prioritized starting in 2021 with Vision Zero? And why did you choose those implementations? Yeah, so we started looking at a lot of streets that are on this high injury network in the city. So that's impacting vulnerable communities, not a lot of arterial roadways that are just seeing higher percentages of crashes involving involving vulnerable roadway users, right. um, like bicyclists, pedestrians, and motorcycles. So a lot of those roads, if they've come up or we've, we've studied because they're up for resurfacing, or we know it's an issue that's ongoing. So we've those in the pipeline um, to target for protected bike facilities. Oh, to target. So you haven't been able to implement any of those yet then? No, they will be implemented in the coming years, basically, as as far as our design and construction schedule goes. Do you think that people understand what Vision Zero is? And is there there a pushback to that? Or because it seems to me putting lives above all else is a reasonable motto. And I'm curious why maybe some more infrastructure hasn't been able to go in? With our Vision Zero program, you know, along with 
changing infrastructure, which is a, a huge part of what we're doing. We're changing policies and practices and even looking to affect legislation. I think a really important component about that is a shift in culture okay. and the education and outreach, which we are doing. But I see a real need there where the general public I think they're starting to hear more about Vision Zero, but really getting people to understand the why, why, why this matters, why we want people to cross here, why we don't want people going at crazy speeds because they feel it. So what I learn have learned over the past few years is I think part of the culture change is going to take influence in all these areas. And I heard someone compare once that how we think and look at our our transportation system culturally would need change and influence like the tobacco industry did, right? So you think 30, 40 years ago, you could smoke on an airplane and on any restaurant and pretty much anywhere you wanted. And over the course of, you know, decades, TV has changed where you get a, a warning if someone's smoking on your show and there's laws that say you can't smoke in certain places like an airplane. You can't smoke so many feet outside of a building that might be a, a, a law, it might be a, a building policy. It's not socially acceptable in the same way that it used to be. So a lot of these factors, I think, have layered into our culture. And I think culturally, it's for traffic safety, it's still socially acceptable to go. The speed limit is a minimum for a lot of people. It's all about me as an individual to get where I need to go and and less consideration for everybody who needs to get somewhere and the idea of prioritizing lives above all else culturally, I don't think has permeated yet. I think right. that's something we're working towards. Right. And so I think language matters a lot. What kind of language are you changing to try to get the public to to see a different side of road violence? I mean, again, I I have seen a lot of discussion and I have encouraged everyone that I interact with to substitute the word accident with crash. And that is the most simple, basic, actionable item I can give to anybody, starting with children and say, you know what, the first thing you can do is try to change the way you think about this and change this word in your language. And the reason for it is that the word accident assigns no accountability to what are essentially preventable crashes and preventable outcomes, right? right. And and generally, you don't say, oh, well, a plane got into an accident. And so you hear, you know, right. a plane crashed and it's a big deal. And right. what happened? Helps people think of there is an accountability. And, and I heard from some advocacy groups, like one mother say, what happened to my child was no accident. And that really resonated with me. Right. Um, right. And so I try to frame it in that way for people to think about. And they're like, yeah, I can think about it in that way. It's very basic and very simple, but towards that change in culture. Yeah, it's funny because I find myself still saying accident sometimes, mm-hmm. and I'm very aware of that. And another one that I hear often now is a car didn't kill someone. It was a person driving the car mm-hmm. that killed someone. So I think that those are really important. Let me ask, what? Uh, how, how will Columbus change, you think, if Vision Zero is more fully realized? Um, I mean, we're working on our new bike plan, so we're trying to get more protected infrastructure so we can accommodate basically all ages and abilities to be able to make short trips in and around the city. And I think that's one of our big goals and it definitely aligns with vision zero as well as our climate action plan. Right. What are the positive and or negative impacts? I don't know that I see any negative impacts. I think those are perceptions. I think the reality is everybody has access to safe mobility, whether or not you have a car, you can get somewhere through transit. That is something we, we, 
we are one of few cities that don't have any kind of rail transit, but we are looking to change even our, our bus transit system to be um, more of a rail-like system. And I think through some corridors, we have a project called Link Us, where these corridors will have premium transit on them. The infrastructure will be built up around those corridors for bicycle and pedestrian access. So those first last mile trips are easy to get to those corridors. Columbus is booming. We have Intel coming here to be like the next Silicon Valley of the Midwest. We have Honda expanding nearby. We have the Ohio State University is building millions of more square foot footage of building space. We are booming. More people are coming in. We're expected to grow in population. And with that density, I think some of that density will force people to make different decisions about how they move around. And I think some of that congestion, I mean, interestingly, congestion doesn't necessarily lead to increased uh, traffic right. violence, right? It forces people to slow down. And with the number one contributing factor to the outcomes of crashes, you know, I, I see some of the shifts in what's happening to our city to pair w- with what we're trying to do with Vision Zero and these movements are going to happen together. I think it's going to take time though, right? Yeah. We we spent decades focusing our transportation system on how quickly and conveniently we can move motorized traffic. Yeah. 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 And that's not going to be undone in five years. Right. Right. Angie, maybe you can speak to this. I'm, I'm curious about how Vision Zero and housing connect, especially as a town like Cleveland or Columbus or Los Angeles grows. Yeah, I mean, a lot of people are put in a position right now in the U.S. because of where they live. It's not necessarily convenient or safe for them to do almost any trips that aren't by car. And I think Columbus is a very kind of sprawling city. Um, I forget exactly what the landmass is, but a lot of uh, parts of Columbus are really kind of suburban in nature. So I, I think, you know, the way this affects people really varies a lot based on what their neighborhood is like. The, the benefits of increased safety will benefit everyone. Right. With the university, the Ohio State University, I mean, mm-hmm. it's one of the biggest campuses for decades. It's been like over 50,000 students. Right, so it's, right. a, it's huge. I went so, to U of M, by the way. We'll talk about that. Um, <laughs> go Bucks. We are looking to add accommodations for hubs and micromobility. But if you accommodate cyclists, you accommodate the micromobility. And that's a real transportation option for people. And we see that because I think there was a lot of trepidation when the birds landed in Columbus and turned into a real mobility option for people. So we need to think about how to incorporate them safely and still allow for accessibility for you know, our sidewalks and that kind of thing. The the conversations around parking versus street usage too, right? In a lot of cases, historically here, it's been on street parking versus bike lanes. Right. Um, and I think maybe we're shifting away from that having to be the one versus the other, and maybe they can both play in the same space and we look at reallocating the lanes in a different way. So I think there's more appetite for that here than there was historically. But certainly as we build and develop an infill, you maybe don't need a car to get where you need to go because you have bike and mobility options that are safe to get from A to B. Um, So I think that's coming and going to happen over time. You know, know, one of the things that we talk about a lot is just being car light, 
you know, maybe you still have a car or you still use a car, but you just don't use it for every trip. I would love to see just us to to bend the curve. We've talked a lot in COVID, right? Change change the outcomes of the trends we saw in in COVID. And we need to bend the curve here in Columbus about with roadway fatalities. And COVID really affected us in a negative way on so many levels, increasing those fatal crashes. Right. We have doubled the number of people who have died on Columbus streets since 2015. So I would hope within the next five years, we're going to see that trend changing downwards. And so we said we just started implementing Vision Zero in the last two years. It's going to take some time for the right. data to catch up with the, the items that we're implementing. If we show a change in, in trend in that way, um, I think that's a strong goal to pursue. Right. And I, I also think people just start to realize that they live in a more livable community. They they work and recreate and go to school and in a more pleasant environment, less noise, less, less uh, traffic, less bad air, all that. You know, we like to end our conversations on bike talk by asking people, what's their bike joy? Emma, do you, do you ride a bike? What's your, what's your bike joy? I'm just really enjoying the e-bikes. I rode my first e-bike last year and it was really fun. So I, I'd like to do that a little bit more. And I think it really opens up the possibilities of even longer trips. Um, so like you said, car light, you can kind of switch out the car potentially for an e-bike. Totally. I love that. Your, your bike joy is an e-bike. Maria? Again, I am also a recreational biker, and my bike joy is hitching a, a trailer onto my bike for my toddler and letting him fall asleep as he enjoys the fresh air while I ride around. <laughs> Perfect. That's great. Yeah. And Angie, how about you? What's your bike joy? I am a commuter cyclist, and in Cleveland, we just opened a, a really beautiful stretch of new trail that takes me right from my house past my kids' school to my office, which is so amazing. And lately I've been biking with my two kids. They're um, five and seven, you know, watching them enjoy it and getting to be on a little bit of a trail away from traffic for part of it is amazing. Oh, that's great. I, I, I love that. I think children are so much more exposed to their environment on the back of a bicycle than they are in the back seat of a car. Angie, Maria, Emma, thank you so much for being on Bike Talk, but really thank you for all the work that you're doing in making Columbus and Cleveland and Angie for you, so many places, a better and safer place to live and bike. Thank you. Thank you. So it's just me and you, Nick. Seamus' wife picked him up after he had a flat tire on the side of the road. Yeah, those tubeless tires are not all they're cracked up to be. I I don't use tubeless tires, do you? No, and now I I know why. Yeah, yeah. I have tubed tires and patch my tubes all the time and stick them back in. I don't know. Maybe we're old-fashioned. Yeah. I really like the interview that we just heard. Uh, Maria and Emma and Angie are really wonderful. One of the things I thought was so great about what they said is that A town like Columbus is exploding. You know, they have a lot of new corporations coming in. The university there is getting bigger and bigger all the time. So we have to plan for the future. It's not possible that everybody runs every errand, no matter what, in a car. And that brings us up to the next interview, which is with Nick Deshaies, who is the editor of the Inlander magazine in Spokane, Washington. First, I think we want to give props to local news organizations. We are losing local news all the time. And it's really nice to see a local newspaper take a stand on where we are going as a society. Nick Deshaies wrote a wonderful article 
called The Future Belongs to the Bicycle. Mm -hmm. And then he went on to name some cities where it really does belong to the bicycle, Copenhagen, Mexico City, Portland, and Spokane, Washington. Here he is. I'm here with Nick Deshay, who's the editor of Inlander Magazine up in Spokane, Washington. A lot of people talk about how America could be, should be more like Europe. You were just in Europe and you ran into someone who said Europe could be more like Spokane, Washington. Tell me how that went. Well, it's, it's interesting. I was on a, a month long tour, I guess, of Northern Europe. We just went to Denmark and the Netherlands. So mainly focused on Copenhagen and Amsterdam, but we met a, with a lot of bicycle planners and little towns. And, you know, I think it was week three of the trip right outside of a town called Nijmegen. And uh, we were just getting ready for a day's ride. And we met this guy named Soares and I said, hey, I'm from the States. And he said, where? And I said, oh, Spokane. I finally got to Spokane. And he said, I've been there. It's lovely. It's It has so much potential for being a bicycling city. And first I thought he was, you know, blowing smoke or something. And right. then he said, oh, I love this bar here. And he, he knew the name of the bar that's actually not far from my office. It was funny because Spokane, for people who haven't been here, it is a city. It's a very small city. We have, you know, 200,000 people here, about half a million in the whole metro area. We have pretty harsh winters and hilly terrain. So it's not a place you think bicycles. I ride my bike year round. There are a number of people here who do it. Uh, but I just thought, ah, he, he's just being nice to me. You know, Spokane right. is lovely. I love it, but it's not a bicycling place. And we started riding on this thing called Dorfitsruta or right. something like that. And basically yeah. we call them bicycle highways, but it means keep going route. And it's just a, a long path bikes that you don't really have to stop on you just you know right. the car stop for you it goes underneath uh, rail commuter rail lines and over the canals so you just keep riding you never have to break we were riding on this Dorfitz route and i thought oh we we do have that in spokane we have something called the centennial trail which goes from the idaho border 30 miles from here through the middle of spokane i'm looking at it right here it's right along our river gorge <clears throat> right downtown so i thought oh he actually is on to something we do have this kind of backbone for a right could be an amazing cycling city here. Right. I've been here about 10 years, a little over a decade. It is like increased by leaps and bounds in the time I've been here. We've have more bike lanes, protected bike lanes, more trails. We have our Centennial Trail, but we have the Trail of the Quarter Lanes, which if people haven't heard of that, that is a world-class thing. It's 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 an hour away from here, but I've actually ridden my bike from my house to the Trail of the Quarter Lanes and it's it's an amazing stretch. It's a rail trail, but it's in the middle of the wilderness. There's moose. It's just a fantastic. Oh, wow. Wow. It sounds beautiful. You know, one of the things I often hear people in America saying is American cities aren't like Europe, Paris or Barcelona or Copenhagen. And what works there will never work here. So don't even try. I'm curious, what were the things that you saw on your trip to Northern Europe that you think will work here? not only in Spokane, but in Los Angeles and Cincinnati and Louisville and... Well, everything. It's not possible here. It doesn't feel possible here because of the transportation system we've built over the last 50, 60, 70 years right. that's so geared towards the automobile. If you built protected bike lanes, if you built connected trails, if you had a nice dense city network of bikeways, people would ride it. Most people right. don't ride it. And I'm not telling you anything you don't know because it feels unsafe. 90% of people don't want to interact with cars that way. And so what you see in Copenhagen, especially because they've really made leaps and bounds in the last 20 years, is these separated lanes. And it's nothing fancy. It's basically like kind of another sidewalk on a different level than the sidewalk on the street. So you have the street and then a little bit higher the bike, then a little bit higher the sidewalk. So people just from visual cues see like, oh, 
this is where I'm supposed to be. And the Dutch right. have this, this great term that I like called disentanglement. Basically means separating the modes of travel. You know, like a bike shouldn't be on a sidewalk. A bike shouldn't be in a car lane and a car shouldn't be on a side, you know, just keep them right. separate and we'll right. all be happier. We'll all flow differently. You know, cars act differently than bikes. Uh, the Idaho stop is a good example of that. We kind of right. moved. So just keeping us separate will actually make our roads safer and make more people ride and, you know, help the world at large because people will be driving less at climate change. You know, that'll help solve one climate change factor. So, <laughs> well, I love that idea of, of disentangling the three main modes of transportation, walking, cycling, and I guess under cycling could be scooters and, and all oh, yeah. of that stuff and automobiles. But that does mean adding a third transportation lanes somewhere, maybe not on the street in front of my house, but on the more arterial streets. How do they do that in Copenhagen and Amsterdam? Well, uh, to be frank, and they've done it, and you know, they have huge numbers of people that commute by bike. And they had a harder time than we do because they live in Europe where their cities were built long ago and their streets are much, much uh, narrower, right? Narrower than ours, where here in Spokane, LA, most American cities, we have these massive streets that are not only have too many car lanes, but also parking lanes. So there's plenty of space, I think, in the States. And, you know, it, it's something that's hard to persuade people who only drive. Right. Say, like you have too many lanes. And if we build you another lane, it's not going to help your commute out. It's just going to get filled up and you're going to be stuck in traffic again. What we need to right. do is imagine our streets and get them back the variety they once were. And well, one of the things you said in your article is that separated bikeways. And also, I know that the term road diets has taken on kind of a negative connotation a little bit lately, but the big street near my house is, is Fairfax in Los Angeles. And it's actually nine lanes wide, counting parking lanes. And in one section, they took the three lanes north and the three lanes south and made it two lanes north, two lanes south, and added a not a protected bike lane, but added a spaced bike lane. And in your article, you say that that actually makes the road safer for everybody, not just cyclists. How does that work? Well, you know, that's kind of easier to see for everybody, even in the, in the if you're just kind of used to driving, you know, if you have a big multi-lane one-way road, mm -hmm. kind of on a highway, you feel unimpeded. You feel like I can go fast. Yeah. Where all of a sudden you have cars coming from the other direction, your road gets a little narrower, it's just, you know, it's just your brain saying, oh, there's more going on. I have to slow down. You know, I have to pay attention. And that just creates safer driving conditions or conditions for everybody because everybody's right. paying a little bit more attention. You're not just on autopilot driving as fast as you can, which is frankly how it is here in downtown Spokane. We have, you know, three, four lane one ways that were used to be two way, you know, right. used to have streetcars, but sometime in the 40s or 50s, they decided they put some highways through. So, yeah. You also talk about how bikes are the most efficient way to move in cities. 6,000 bikes can travel in the same space that 1,000 cars can. You've probably seen this meme that floats around social media every now and again, where it shows like uh, how much space is taken up by people in cars. And it just shows one person in the space of a car and then in a bus and then, and then a bike. You know, you just really squish the bike is various small right. things. When I'm riding my bike, I feel like I'm flying or I feel like I'm in I'm water. You know, I'm just flowing through right. and around things. And so bikes are just not only efficient as far as moving because of our muscles and they're just really beautiful, simple, elegant machines. They're perfect in the urban context. One of the things you also mentioned in, in your article is that 
in Copenhagen, there are still cars. It's not like they drastically changed the world and there are no cars. There are still cars, but they've managed to find a way for cars and bikes to coexist. People still drive around, but they, I think they've realized in a city, bikes make more sense. Like it's easier to get a mile in a bike and cheaper than it is to have a car. So they still have the faster, frankly, faster. Yeah. Here in the States, we talk about freedom and liberty. And I know they're just political terms that people just say, but you know, liberty really means like having the ability and, you know, choices spread before you. Like I can choose different things where in the States, we have one choice generally to, to transport ourselves. It's the car where there they can pick, oh, will I ride my bike today? Or will I take the train? Will I take a bus? Will I actually get in my car? Right. You know, I actually have that before them. I think that's really important. I, I wonder if you have any ideas of why bikes and bike transportation has become sort of a liberal thing and that conservatives are against it. You know, we always see things about people on Fox News making fun of Pete Buttigieg and his bicycle or something like that. And what we're talking about and what we're fighting for is freedom of choice. And I think those are the catchwords for the for the right. Not that you're right or left or I'm right or left, but I think those are the catchwords for the right. But how did we miss out in connecting more to the conservative people in our environments by using this argument that you just made? You know, I'm not sure. I think about that a lot as a journalist. You know, I'm always trying to reach the broadest audience and kind of, you know, I, I really take seriously my role of trying to find common ground and finding solutions and not falling into the kind of arguments that are easily found on cable news or, you know, wherever else, not to get too deep into that stuff. Right. I've always thought like, cause I am very much into bicycles and I think like they are salvation for us in a lot of ways, uh, a bomb for a lot of the decisions we've made in the past. And one of those things, not only the, the choice thing I think would resonate or I thought it would, but also the, the frugality or like, we shouldn't just be blowing our money on these. Totally. the AAA, you know, the Automobile Association said it, they just said it costs about $10,000 a year to own a car in America, right? right? You know, if I'm a fiscal conservative, I'm thinking that's a waste of money. Is there a better use of my money where, you know, I bought my bike 12 years ago for $1,000, which at the time I was like, oh, this is a big amount of money. And, you know, I've did some work here and there on it, maybe another $1,000. So over a, more than a decade, I've spent about two grand on my bike. And right. it just kind of boggles my mind that we just keep falling for that. And, you know, I, I don't know how we got here. I go back to a story I wrote years ago in Spokane where we had a very robust streetcar network here. And we have a big, beautiful waterfall right in the middle of town that powered those streetcars. Mm -hmm. So nowadays, it's we call it, you know, carbon zero, whatever, like carbon neutral, net right. zero. And why did we tear it up? And I looked back at the coverage and people were just kind of like, oh, these things are old and they make noise and we want the new shiny thing. Right. wonder if that's what's driving us. We are, to use a different term of the word progressive, uh, like we would just want to keep going to the new shiny object. We want the new iPhone. We want the new car or this or that. And bikes feel so old and they feel childish. These kind right. of demeaning things we put on the bike where right. if we just step back, I always say, if you just make yourself ride a bike for a week, you'll probably like it. Totally. And you'll change your view about the built environment. Totally. You also talk a little bit about children. When I was a kid, bikes were freedom. You use some stats here about how many children ride to school then, meaning the 70s or 80s, and now meaning the 2020s. How many children are 
killed on the road. It's really a, a depressing stat. It really is. And if you look at the Netherlands, I think it's four out of five children ride their bike or walk to school and the parents are very happy about it because it gives them you know, exercise, a sense of independence, which allows them to make better choices. Right. It gives them responsibility for themselves. It teaches all kinds of things. We're here, you know, not to, again, go on a tangent, but like we're scared for our kids here. And to me, it is a travesty because I grew up in the 80s and it was, you could feel it shifting then and you could even feel it then like, ah, bikes, we all want cars now. And sure. I remember being a kid riding around and just getting lost for a day and just feeling like I was on my own. And that sense of liberation is so real. And you know, it's still there. That's why I still have hope. You get on a bike, you feel liberated. It's, you can give it to anybody and they'll still feel like I can ride out of town or I'm not stuck. I'm not beholden to anything at this point. It is depressing because you look at our country and we have an obesity problem. And I think we have a lot of anxiety and uh, a lot of fear. And it's hard to have those things when you're on a bike. You when know, you're riding a bike. It's a very joyful thing to be on a bike. <laughs> What's your moment of bike joy? Well, we're here in Spokane. You and I are talking kind of a spring is in the air here finally. And I, I rode all winter and I put studded tires on my bike. Oh, and wow. Going and it was fun and I felt I felt good about it, you know. It, but it's it's not fun riding, <laughs> you know, in ice and sleet and cars for some reason drive even worse in the snow. So I would say it was about two weeks ago when I put on my normal tires again. And the pavement was clear and I hit the Centennial Trail and I got to go on maybe a 20 mile ride and just went kind of poking around my old haunts that I hadn't seen in a few months. Uh, the sun was out, you know, it's very simple. Like when I describe it, it just sounds like another day. But as you and I know, when you're out there and the, the breeze is going by and you can't really see anything else, like you just can't help but be in a good mood. Whatever melancholy you had is dissipated uh, and it's, it's just you and the world, you know. And you don't always feel that behind the wheel of a car. I ride my bike for many, many reasons, but one of them is because when I drive, and I own a car, I should say, like, I'm not anti-car, like, I just, cars are not meant for the city, they're meant for the road trip or whatever. But every time I get behind the wheel of a car, I get angry. <laughs> I yeah, yell. Me. Yeah, I get you know. so impatient, and I'm like, what is this weird mentality that just happens when you're in a car? Yeah, it's yeah. So it's car brain, totally. Yeah. When you say cyclist in America... People think you're a middle-aged guy who puts on Lycra on weekend and you go for hundred mile rides and you right. go really fast and you know, you ride in traffic. Feetzer is somebody who rides a bike. It's a person who rides a bike, not a, a person. Who rides a bike. So you're wearing your normal clothes and you're not going super fast. And maybe you're going to walk up that hill that you hate and you got a basket. You can throw your groceries or backpack in or your purse or whatever. It's that sort of, I got on my bike and, and I enjoy it. Um, so that's kind of my definition of feetzer. We yeah. all don't want to be cyclists, but we can all be feetzers. The person who, who rides a bike. Yeah, well, thanks, Taylor. I, I appreciate being on here. It was great to talk with you. And journalism uh, is alive and well in some quarters, but it is under assault. So I appreciate any time to kind of spread the good word of uh, independent yeah. press. And, you know, we're protected by the First Amendment. We're a big part of our country and our democracy and power to the people sort of stuff. So I'm happy to be part of it. I'm on Twitter at Nick Deshay. We're uh, inlander.com. We have a, a website. We are mainly a print publication, but we do have our website and we're on all the socials, of course. And I'm easy to find. Uh, anybody can send me an email. I'm happy to always talk to anybody about this stuff. I love, I love talking journalism. I love talking bicycles. So, <laughs> Well, thanks very much, Nick, for being on Bike Talk. Thanks, Taylor. I appreciate it. I love that. I love that the future belongs to the bicycle, Nick. It makes me think of the movie Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid with Paul Newman riding Catherine Ross around on his bicycle, singing raindrops keep falling on my head. 
And at the end of the sequence, he throws the bicycle into a river and says, ah, the future is all yours. Wow. Paul Newman says that the future belongs to the bicycle. What did that mean in that context? Well, in that context, it meant that the future did not belong to the bicycle. The future still belonged with Paul Newman. But if you watch the end of the movie, you realize that Paul Newman and the Sundance Kid, Robert Redford, don't have much of a future. So the future is with the bicycle. Exactly. Oh, wow. That's deep, Taylor. <laughs> Except, as we know, when the century changed to the 1900s and cars came, the bicycle was lost for another 70 years. But we're making a comeback. We're coming back, baby. Um, it was a nice show, Nick. Yeah, thanks. I loved um, the interview with the Oakland Traffic Violence Response Group, uh, uh, George and Carter. And I thought that Maria and Emma and Angie in Columbus are doing a great job getting Vision Zero off the ground, moving forward to create safe streets for everybody. Mm -hmm. And I thought Nick Deshay said it right when he said that the future belongs to the bicycle. Yeah. See you next week. And that was Bike Talk. If you have a story, a tip, or a topic, head over to biketalk.org and send us a message. Talk again next week. Get on your bike. Sit on the seat. Put your feet on the pedals. And ride it all around, ride it all around.